This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello, welcome to the sixth episode of Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, the fabulous garden on the Norfolk coast, we have Alan, Edward, Herbert Gray, Herbert the happy, handsome horticulturalist, who may or may not want to introduce me. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say, sitting in the depths of Cambridgeshire, surrounded by water, I do believe, or you were at least this weekend, we have Thordis. Maria Sophia Friedrichsen. <laughs> yes, it has certainly been very rainy. There was a moment when we looked out of our house and fortunately no flood water came in, but it was like a kind of river running down the road. Uh, so we've had our fair share of thunderstorms, which is actually quite relevant to our mystery guest. So on my cue, the big reveal, who is behind the mystery window today? Hello there, it's uh, <laughs> Stephen Joseph Coghill. <laughs> Ooh, sounds very proper. Stephen Joseph Coghill, head gardener at King's College, Cambridge. So just down the road from me. And, and that's how come I've invited you along to this podcast, because mm -hmm. I had the most joyful, well, probably well over an hour, stealing away your very busy time, oh. uh, looking around the, the amazing plants in many corners uh, of, of King's College and its grounds. And um, I imagine all the rain we've had has caused its fair share of problems for you because you had a big kind of dry weather job lined up. Oh my goodness, didn't we just? Uh, in, in fact, if you have a look on, um, uh, on uh, Anglia Telly's uh, ITV news slot of a few days ago on catch up, you'll see us looking like drowned rats harvesting our wildflower meadow. <laughs> and uh, we, we've also got uh, a nice bit of coverage in The Guardian and, uh, and The Times and the like. So it's been really great fun. And we were working with Trinity College. We had uh, uh, Tom Hujenga and, uh, and Sarah is the deputy head gardener over uh, with their amazing Alpine baler. Uh, that's a, a, little, uh, a little baler, which is a sort of um, uh, wheel horse baler that uh, is used in, up in the, the mountains and the, the sort of the the pastures of the mountains in Italy and Switzerland and Germany. And there we were chugging across the, uh, the wildflower meadow in front of the chapel, bailing to our heart's content. <laughs> it is typical though, isn't it? That in so much hot, dry weather, the, the day you schedule to bail up your wildflower meadow is the day that it chucks it down. It's, it's absolutely, well, you know, I, I, couldn't have, I couldn't have timed it better because things have been so dry and I thought, I know, let's go bailing. <laughs> it's bound to bring on some biblical rain and, and it did, you know, the, the rain was biblical. Uh, it was a toss up between us building an ark or carry on bailing. Um, the fact that we found a couple of uh, unicorns hiding in the senior uh, common room here is neither here nor there. Now, I'm sure everybody in the world knows all about your wildflower meadow, but for the one or two who didn't hear what you did, this was a, a real big game changer for this absolutely iconic view in Cambridge. Yes, it was. It was um, it's a fabulous thing. Since about the 17, uh, 1770, 1780s, it's been a close cropped grass. And uh, 
you know, if you're in the 18th century and you had large areas of grass that were, uh, that were scythed or uh, grazed very closely, it was an indication of the fact that you were so fabulously wealthy. Here we were in the, in the middle of Cambridge and we didn't have to do anything productive with the land other than to turn it into a lawn, which would act as a foil for all the spectacular buildings. So it really was a, a, a statement of wealth and privilege. And um, the lovely thing about putting a meadow there is the fact that, you know, it, it demonstrates very, very clearly that the Gardens Committee of, Cambridge, of, of, of King's College and that the Fellowship of King's College are happy to move with the times to, to respect and respond to what's happening with climate change and do something which is um, carbon friendly, <clears throat> but do something which is also uh, there for biodiversity and also there for sustainability. So it's been really great uh, having a chance to walk the talk like that. Uh, <clears throat> and the reason why um, I'm a little bit dishevelled at the moment is uh, we're giving away the bales to uh, the other college gardens so they can strew the bales uh, to, to produce more wildflower meadows. And I've just carried a, a bale to, um, to uh, uh, Joe Cobb, the head gardener of Murray Edwards' van, and just plonked it in here. So I am, I am covered in oxide daisy, um, all that's corn chamomile, I've got a little bit of, um, little bit of uh, cornflower going on over here. <laughs> hysterical. <laughs> what I love, having got really up close and personal, which was incredibly lucky, because most people got to look at the meadow from a distance with all of the kind of coronavirus restrictions and things, but I got to get up close and see how much was in the mix. Now, Alan, of course, you specialise in your kind of annual meadow at East Ruston, which is, I think what I love about the meadow at East Ruston is that you kind of happen upon it. You know, you're exploring the garden and you're going around corners and then out of nowhere, you suddenly kind of round a hedge and there is this beautiful kind of cornflower, oxide daisy, corn marigold mix with that church as a backdrop and it is entirely magical. But I suppose, you know, meadows, they're, they're very different things. Um, well, meadows normally have grass in them, don't they? But I mean, ours is more of an, the cornfield is more of an arable field. I mean, it is the cornfield weeds basically of yesteryear before we had systemic and, and uh, the specialised sprays that actually kill weeds and leave the corn to grow. Um, uh, selective weed killers is what I'm looking for. Um, before we had those, we used to pull all, all those sort of things out by hand. Um, and you could see people sort of walking through the cornfields, pulling out thistles and goodness knows what. In fact, the corn poppies were, were very much a nuisance. Now, of course, we have difficulty in trying to get them to grow because they, we sow the seed every year. But the funny thing is that this year we didn't do anything. We just left the land fallow over the winter and we riffled it um, and, you know, just sort of riffled the seedlings, seeds in at the beginning of spring. And, you know, it's the best it's been for many, many years. But there was an addition to it this year. There was something called Phacelia tenacetifolium, which you know is those blue caterpillar things, which is really grown as a green manure plant and ploughed in to, um, to, to um, put nutrition into the soil. Um, but we leave it to flower. And I mean, it is one of the most fabulous plants for bees and butterflies. And that, I mean, you talk about happening onto the cornfield. What was happening this year, it was so productive with all the bees and the butterflies, you could hear it before you could see it. I mean, there was this buzz, um, which is magnetic, and I think it bowled everybody over. And of course, what we did at the end, when it, and it, it frazzled up very quickly, I have to say, because, and I'm sure Steve's did too, because, I mean, we had all that very, very hot weather. And so, so we chopped it down and, and took, the, took, took the top off, because we didn't, didn't want to put too much nutrition back in. 
in the vain hope that we would get rain sooner than we did. But we shall see, now that we've actually had substantial amounts of rain, well, I say that, it, it, we've had quite a lot of rain, but it hasn't penetrated very deep. That's the problem. But at least if it's penetrated an inch, it'll be enough to germinate a few seedlings. And I'm just wondering, you know, if we're running downhill with the wind behind us and set a fair sail, we might just get a few flowers in there before we get to the end of October, which would be lovely. It was interesting going to see the, the King's Meadow because you're right, it has crystal. grand, doesn't it? Oh, I know. <laughs> My little personal tour. And uh, it was amazing, actually. I, I commented at the time that it changed with every step because it was this big blanket of rusty, rusty tones. And you could just about tell there were little pricks of colour, but then the, the closer you got, the, the more into focus all those poppies and cornflowers that were still flowering came. But then it was particularly good, Steve, that you, when we got right up at the meadow, you could point out all the perennials that are now starting to come through because this is a meadow that's, that kind of has many different uh, ways and will evolve over the coming years. Yes, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way the the meadow will evolve because um you know we um, like alan we've been watching uh, um nigel dunnett's pictorial meadows sort, sort of um uh, develop um, as out of Sheff sheffield university uh, which i think is, is is fascinating and there's um there's more plants there that that i think could be worked into uh, annual meadows i mean amy magus is a is a lovely lovely plant that i'd like to see more of Facilius is fascinating actually. If, if we were going to do this again, I think I'd incorporate it. But we're now managing the meadow to to sort of change into a into a perennial wildflower meadow. But we're not we're not going to we haven't chopped off the annuals to allow the, the perennials through straight away. We're going to sort of uh, ma manage the annuals out over a period of years. So this year, you know, we, we would try and hope to cut the, the wildflower meadow. Uh, you know, third week of July, final week of July. But this time we, we stretched it all the way through into the second week of August so that an awful lot of the annual seed will fall back on the ground to act, act as a sort of a, a little bit of competition with the perennials which are coming through. But because we had that incredibly dry May, we didn't have any problems with the annuals falling on top of the perennials as they start to sort of plump up underneath them. And in, in, a, in a strange sort of way, the, the annuals acted like a, a nurse crop for the perennials, which are hiding underneath. And, uh, and now once we, you know, we've now got all of the bales off it, uh, underneath the, uh, now all the bales are gone and we, we were down to a little bit of a, a sort of a, a annual wildflower stubble, but underneath all those perennials are green, they're lush, they're growing through. And uh, when you actually stand back on Queen's Road and look back towards the chapel, there's no difference at all between uh, the, the cut area and our, and our mown lawn, um, which goes to show that, you know, when it's not a wildflower meadow, it's still a lawn, which is, which is great. So we're, we're very excited about, about what, what we're up to. And, um, you know, we're going to be naturalising bulbs fairly shortly as well. So ideas for bulbs from you and Alan will be much grateful. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, certainly you, Alan. What bulbs would you want to see in there? Well, um, first and foremost, it has to be, um, I, I like natural looking thing, uh, plants. I don't like um, full-blown daffodils that have been fed on steroids and, you know, they've got big heads. Um, but I do like plants like camassias. Oh, yes. And I think they, they, they work excellently for us. 
Um, funnily enough, it's one of those things where you, you have to go with your gut feeling because if I, if I take any notes of all the horticultural books, including the RHS Encyclopedia, I would never have grown camassias here at East Ruston because we have a very free draining soil. Our water table is 20 feet below the surface. Um, and it is said that they must have moisture. Well, I suppose I planted probably 50 bulbs and in one patch we've got at least 500 today. So it just goes to show you they really do like where they are. And I think one thing to, that everybody, every gardener has to bear, bear in mind, and I think Steve will probably back me up on this, is the fact that, you know, you have to go with your gut feeling. Um, and if a plant speaks to you, nine times out of ten it will do all right because they are nothing if not adaptable. I'm not saying, you know, that they it, it's people assume that they like it because that's where they grow naturally, but that doesn't mean they can't grow in other, other sort of areas. And talking about meadow gardening, uh, Steve, I don't know whether you've ever read the book, but that Christopher Lloyd wrote on meadow gardens. Um, it's probably out of print today, but you'd probably be able to get it. Um, he was fascinated by the subject of, of growing perennials in, meadow, in meadows, um, even to the plant, plant, uh, point of planting peonies in meadows. Um, and, and some of these things that, you know, you, you can't just go over it with a scythe or an Allen scythe or something willy-nilly. You've got to kind of dodge around it with a, with a proper scythe or something like that, or even maybe a strimmer. Um, but it was quite fascinating, some of the plants that he used to use. And, I mean, one that we use in a meadow situation here is a crane's bill. Um, and, and the idea, I think, is if you... If, when, if anybody's starting this off and they want to make a meadow garden, the first thing is to try and knock back your turf. If you've got a rich soil, which we have, um, it's not so good because it, the grasses are very aggressive and very clumpy. So we need to get rid of those to start with. Um, and the other thing is you use perennials that are tough. And peonies are nothing if not tough. I mean, peony, you plant a peony today and come back in 50 years, the plant will still be there. Um, that's the kind of thing that you want, really. And, and another plant that we used in our meadow is a, a very tall, uh, late flowering inula. Um, that has big heads like sunflowers. I mean, it's just such a dramatic plant. It is absolutely fantastic. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And um, I will have to get hold of uh, Christopher Lloyd's book on, uh, on meadow planting. Christopher Lloyd, by the way, was a Kingsman. Was he? Uh, oh, he was, yes. Yeah, he, was, he was here as a student. And I was in the archives a little while ago, sort of researching out on the grounds and gardens, because, you know, you've got to know, you've got to uh, know thyself. Um, and uh, found a letter that uh, had been written uh, that George Salt, uh, Dr. Salt, who was a, a fellow at King's, an entomologist uh, and member of the Gardens Committee, had written to Christopher Lloyd uh, asking his opinion on a number of uh, crotagus that uh, he wanted to grow on uh, Library Road. And Christopher Lloyd wrote a charming uh, um, letter back, uh, commenting on how important it was that uh, that um, Kings employed a, a decent head gardener, for they precede all, according to Lloyd. Yeah, so yeah, I've got I've got a lot of time for for Christopher Lloyd. I think he's a he's a in his time he's a remarkable man, and I, I love his waspish comments about plants. Um, uh, <laughs> he once described um, Iliagnus crossabingii as a plant that appears to consist of nothing more than ingrown toenails. <laughs> <laughs> well, another plant that he he loved, um, and I'm I, I'm actually looking for a place uh, for it. I've got some actually at the moment, and it is he did love privets. Now, people oh. are going to think that privets are sort of, you know, common things, and lots of them are, I suppose. Um, but he did love a particular privet. 
and it, it is uh, ligustrum and it's spelled q-u-i-h-o-u-i and do you know how you say that it's no, no. and you have to put the emphasis on the who it's kihui and the great thing is that he always said that if you say that if you make people say that you know laughter and joy will spread across their face and they'll always remember that plant and it looks like a, it looks like very much like a privet but it has big heads of cream flowers um, in August and September. So it's a, it's a valuable shrub from the point of view that it's a late flowering, a late flowering plant. And it's got that fabulous name, Kwihui. <laughs> and it's a great plant for pollinators too. <laughs> I love that because um, so often I know you, Alan, can be, and I'm sure lots of people, quite disdainful about plant names because they are increasingly named in order to make people buy them for anniversaries or birthdays. Oh, or yes. I mean... Uh, you uh, give a, na a name to a plant and call it Ruby Wedding, I'll never grow it. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll guarantee sales, so someone's winning. <laughs> well, that's what happens, I'm afraid, yes. <laughs> now, we've got quite the King's theme, Christopher Lloyd, a Kingsman. And actually, when it comes to FLOMO, our uh, fear of missing out on a fabulous plant, which, Steve, I always go first, because without doubt, I pick the most sort of boring plant that everybody else grows, because I'm A, the newest gardener, and B, have the smallest garden. Um, mm. But I'm also going to stick with the King's theme. Having picked as my Flomo a couple of weeks back, that utterly amazing campsus uh, that you, mm. well, you've got growing all kinds of different ones all over the place in different corners of King's. But another plant I didn't get the chance to mention in that particular podcast was, I think it was the Provost's Garden, which oh. people can't go to because it's, it's private, it's the Provost's, so I was very lucky to get a look in. But all around the roses, you had an absolute cloud of, uh, you know, not a showstopper plant, but an absolutely brilliant foil plant. And I think it was Calamint. Yeah, Calaminta. Yeah, one of the little Calaminthas. Um, I love Calaminthas. Many, many years ago, a friend of mine, when he was at Leeds Castle in Kent, um, held a national collection of, uh, of Calaminthas. Calaminthas was my big favourites as well. And um, the lovely thing about this Calaminthas, and I can't remember its uh, cultivar name, but it, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put it up later, is it's one of the slightly taller Calaminthas. And growing above it is a good old David Austin rose. It's, um, it's uh, Munstead Wood which is that very, very dark velvety. Um, it looks almost like a, a sort of an early hybrid perpetual across with a hybrid tea, but the flower itself is very trad, very old. It has that sort of guinea feel to it. But, um, you know, like, like most um, HT style roses, the roses are gorgeous. And then the thing that happens underneath is really hideous. Uh, so so um, what we do is we, we float the flowers on top of the calamint. And it, this year it's worked really well. The first year we planted it, we put on too much fertilizer and the roses vanished underneath the canvas. <laughs> <laughs> Is that, are there roses under there? Yes. But um, this year we got it right so that the, the roses just float gently on this, this frothy foam of calamint and it works so nicely. Lovely. And it was funny because I saw it and thought of you, Alan, because the amount of times you told me that, you know, roses need a good companion plant to really show them off because they aren't necessarily leaf wise, particularly if they're susceptible to black spot or something. They're not the most attractive plant. So this, I saw this and I was just like, yes, Alan would love this. Yeah, they're pretty flowers on an ugly plant, basically. And they do have this, this kind of propensity to get all manner of diseases. And, you know, people can't afford nor want today to spray for all of those diseases. If you go to um, the National Rose Garden and you look at the be their beds of roses, I mean, it, 
it after a while it gets faintly boring because it's monoculture it's just one genus you know one plant and in various forms and all the rest of it but i think that uh, that calamint um i need to know the the variety of that because uh, that, is, that sounds to me if it's going to be absolutely wonderful i'm sorry my telephone keeps going off isn't it <laughs> you're very popular I have another Flomo here uh, oh. because of the dry weather. It's not flowering particularly over much at the moment, but my Flomo is Asta divaricatus. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, uh, because it's an Aster that likes shade and it also likes dry conditions. And I know Asters like dry conditions, but this likes dry shade. And we've got a, a belt of ewes that runs down from our fellow's garden to Queen's Road. And it's one of the few plants that actually flowers with any sort of enthusiasm in the shade. And um, Astodi Vericartis, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> a love note. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Alan, you, you seem to be incredibly enthused. You leapt forth with, yes. Well, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's not to say that I didn't know about these plants, but in actual fact, it's so useful. Um, and something that's similar to Astodivaricatus, but it's an annual, is Origeron annuus. And again, it's a white daisy and it self sows and it grows in dry shade and it puts up with everything that you throw at it. I mean, you know, um, I grew it last year and I harvested the seedlings or Ian harvested the seedlings for me this year. I said, do about 20. He did 200 and we've used them all, I have to say. And they've gone in places where, you you know, nothing much else grows like Aster divaricatus. And it's rewarded us with these white daisies, you know, throughout the summer. It's going over slightly now. But if you interplant that with divaricatus, the Aster, you can carry on the show, can't you? Yep, you can it's a small world, Alan, because Joe Cobb, the head gardener of Murray Edwards, who's a superb plant swimmer, was just here. We're just doing some plant swaps. And she just gave me a great clump of Erigeron annus, uh, annuus to say, collect the seeds that you're still flowering yeah, now. And it, and it all sort of fits together. Synchronicity yeah. once again. <laughs> yeah, it's marvellous. Well done. I also think with plants, they're a little bit like, oh, there's anything else in life. You cannot see something for ages and then you'll see it all the time you know you'll see one and you'll, you'll really notice it this happened with the um the mount aso uh, willow that i was completely unaware of and then i came to your garden alan for i think it must have been for snowdrop day you'll be yes. snowdrop event pink pussies get <laughs> <laughs> these these and it because it was um it had been raining so all of those little pink Pussy Willow, little catkins, were all covered in droplets. It was show-stopping, and then I managed well, to walk away with it's, one. It's very strange, because it's one of those plants that if you, I mean, to tell somebody about it verbally, you're flinching, because you, pink pussies on a willow? For goodness <laughs> sake, no, don't, take it away. Um, but when you actually see it, you do like it. Um, and we're, we're, we're trying to sort of do something a little bit more interesting. I've got two weeping standards, probably three, I think. Um, and a couple in pots and things. We're trying to do something interesting with them. I don't know whether we'll ever do it, but I have, have an, a yen to sort of kind of talk those weeping things into curls and twists. Well, it was, it'll probably be hideous, but never mind. <laughs> You've got to try. <laughs> yes. It's funny because after I'd seen it at yours and got one, that was a very gleeful day when I went away having fallen in love with this plant. It went, this is like being Alan Gray. It went from Flomo to having the plant in the space of a few minutes. 
that was <laughs> that was good fun. Um, but then everywhere I went, I seemed to see it. I saw it at the garden centre. My friend who doesn't didn't even have a garden at that point was messaging me saying, when I get a garden, I want this plant. So it's, it's funny how it goes like that. <laughs> you want to know what my flomo is? Yes, I do. Well, this is going to knock your socks off because I couldn't believe it when I learned about this the other day from, and Steve knows Richard from uh, uh, Slotens, uh, Richard Van Edmond. Wonderful yeah. man. Yeah, he is a very good fella, a very good friend. And he said to me, you ought to try this hydrangea. And I said, well, it's wonderful about it. You know, why, why should I? And he said, well, it's worth it for the name, if nothing else. And I said, well, what's the name? And he said, it's Joe Flomo. <laughs> it's J-O-F-L-O-M-O, Joe -O Flomo. Um, and it is, um, I don't know that it's going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to probably knock people's socks off, but what it is, it's a small bun-headed macrophylla uh, with white flowers, but each white flower has a pink eye. Um, and again, I don't know whether that sounds nasty on the description or not. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we are going to try that. So my Flomo is a Joe Flomo. <laughs> oh, it doesn't get any better than that. No, no it doesn't, I don't think. I think we all need one of those. <laughs> I'm sure Richard will be propagating it like mad. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing we like to do with our guests is a, is a spot of show and tell, which can take any form. It can be a bunch of flowers, it can be a plant, it can be an old tool. I did say uh, to Steve, he could bring an old tool if you like, because I know Alan's got a penchant for an old tool. Um, but <laughs> what have you gone for, for a bit of show and tell, Steve? Well, books. I love books. Uh, books are wonderful. Um, uh, you can just lose yourself in a book. They take you on a journey. But this is a journey that's very, very practical and it's very exciting. And uh, if you have a copy of this and there isn't a bit of blood on the page, then you haven't done it right. <laughs> uh, this, this is a graphic handbook. Okay. And this is, this, is, uh, this is a new edition. I thought it wouldn't be a good idea to show my old edition, which is full of holes from various uh, slips with... with um, grafting knives and um and, and the, the occasional sort of wound but uh the the art of grafting and budding is just one of the sort of the high points of the of the craft of horticulture and propagation you know i, I have a friend who said that uh, horticulturists come in a number of different flavors there's a garden designer that looks on pond plants as material and then there is the uh, propagator and the nursery man who looks on plants as a, from a from a point of view of how many how many cuttings can I get out of that plant? <laughs> so you know how many how many times can you cut it into tiny little pieces to make more? And uh, the Grafter's Handbook is really a, a wonderful book for people like that uh, because grafting is one of the exciting things that you do when you're making new plants. And uh, you know I, I've been budding and grafting for years, uh, but uh, there's um, an astonishing budding and grafter out there who still manages his garden um, out in, in the Suffolk uh, landscape um, near Little Glenham. And of course, uh, he was the uh, uh, propagating director for Not Cuts and before then it was at Hillier's. And, um, and he, he came over to um, King's a little while ago with John Dieter and Ivan Dickens. And I'm damned if I can remember his name, it'll come back to me in a minute. <laughs> It, it, it terrified all my my colleagues at college, all my student my student friends at college, uh, by um, his spectacular knowledge of propagation. And it will come back in any second now. I'm going to have one of those light bulb moments. 
But um, by budding and grafting, you can produce plants that otherwise you would not be able to. And the art of grafting uh, and budding also means that you can make plants do things that they wouldn't normally do. And, you know, it, from, uh, from a point of view of uh, roses, we've spoken about roses. And of course, uh, roses are tea budded. And uh, tea budding is something that happens in July. Uh, and uh, in order to actually get a uniform rose crop and uniform rose plants, you usually tea bud your the roses that you actually want to grow onto Rosalax uh, and that's a that's a really fun thing to do. And um, uh, when you actually bud and graft plants, it gives you that wonderful sense of doing something slightly more than taking a cutting and putting it in compost. So there's that more sort of intervention thing. And then you can have a lot of fun as well. Say, for example, in the Provost Garden, we planted a whole bunch of uh, apple cordon on an MM106 rootstock um, uh, four years ago. And they originally all held together by canes. And we took the canes off earlier this year because we grafted them all together. So the whole of the structure is now grafted together so that it is actually completely solid. It needs no support. It produces fruit. The fruit don't droop because on the branches because they're all held together. And it's wonderful. And it's all because of the Grafter's Handbook. So rush out and buy it, but also <laughs> buy, a bum, buy a, bumper, a bumper box of plasters as well. <laughs> Actually, I think that's, that's an incredible book. I mean, uh, I, there's a couple of things that, um, about grafting here. Is that, I mean, if you, for instance, if you get a, a, a magnolia, for instance, magnolia cambellii, if you grow, there's the tree magnolia, oh, which yeah. we see down a wonderful thing if you yeah. grow it from seed you can wait up to 50 years for the seeds to bloom the plant to bloom but if you graft it you can get the plant to flower in between between five and ten years and quite often you can buy grafted plants from uh Burnco's nurseries down in cornwall um they have the national collection of uh, whatever it is at care hayes castle um oh. and so they have access to some stupendous plants and one of the one or two of the magnolias I bought them here. They're they're a bit more expensive. They probably cost you between sixty and a hundred pounds per plant, but you don't have to wait forever for the for the flowers. And the other thing that I've got in the garden that I find fascinating, and so, so do my visitors, is Catalpa bignonioides, the Indian bean tree. And we've got Catalpa bignonioides, and on the top of that, we've got these tiny little heads of Catalpa bignonioides nana. So we've Top work the dwarf one onto an ordinary stem so that you get this very compact dome of foliage um, and it's it's shall I say it looks it's so smart it's very Parisian. <laughs> Ooh la la. Ooh la la. <laughs> it's interesting you talk about the magnolia because from our years on the radio together Alan if there was one thing one question that came up over and over and over again. It was, when will my wisteria flower? And I just, my heart went out to these people who bought a seed grown wisteria and who knows how long they could be waiting. Well, you know, the problem is it's not just the seed grown wisterias. It's sometimes that the, um, the, the, the mother plant, if you like, who's, who is being grafted, she will shoot underneath the graft. And those shoots will always be stronger, or even maybe the graft will fail, but she will shoot from down below. And everybody sort of thinks gamely that, oh, my wisteria is doing really well. It's growing, it's growing. How many flower buds are we going to get? And of course, they don't get any. And that's mainly the reason for it. And I think one of the things to be careful of is to make sure that if you buy wisteria, 
that is grafted, and you should buy a grafted one from a good nursery, um, make sure that you keep your eye on below where the graft is, because that any shoots that come from below that, you need to rip them off. And if you can tear them off, it's better than cutting them off. Um, because if you cut them off, they'll regenerate the whole time. And once they start, they won't stop very easily. So you've got a job for a very long time. <laughs> Every year I get wisteria yeah. envy. I'm kind of trying to hold fire because I want to put it on my forever home. Um, and I have been, I've, I've always kind of thought, after all of the, the questions you've answered on the radio about this, I think I'm just going to buy one when it's in flower. <laughs> also, I've visited gardens before where people have done mass plantings of wisteria and it's not been the colour they wanted because <laughs> yeah. they bought it not in flowers. So I think that's what I'm going to do. All of those things happen. I mean, they're not intentional, but they, it, it, it's, it's genuine mistakes, I think, a lot of the time. I went to um, quite a, a large country house to present the owners with a, a trial for opening their garden for the National Garden Scheme a couple of years ago. And there was two plants growing on the front of this hall, that, um, which I thought was rather wonderful. Um, one was a wisteria, which they, um, you know, they gardeners carefully pruned it, but it went up three stories as an enormous plant. And uh, the, the gentleman of the, of the house again, that's right, Steve, you're not alone. I can't remember his name either. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember that, Brian Humphreys. <laughs> oh, right, well done, well done. Anyway, Simon is his first name. Simon said to me, my mother, and Simon is, is um, shall we say, a mature gentleman. He said, my mother used to get the gardeners to take the banks in rows off the house, a trellis and all, and lay it onto the lawn, or lower it onto the lawn so she could prune it from her standing position and then put it back again. And this thing went up three stories. So can you imagine the logistics of doing that? <laughs> oh, that's really quite ridiculous. <laughs> Well, do you know what? I think we've run out of time. We haven't got time for any questions or anything. We've talked too much about meadows and grafting and show and tell and flomo, but I've had an absolutely wonderful time. If you do have a question, and um, we'll try and answer it on the next episode, you can pop it in the comment section on our YouTube podcasts, or um, if you're listening to this on the audio version, or if you're watching the YouTube version, but you'd like to email and attach a photo, you can send that email to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk and Alan Gray and whoever our next mystery guest will be and we've got all kinds of exciting guests uh, um, not to make you feel unexcited Steve because you were one of them uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll answer your questions in the coming episodes but for the time being Steve thank you very much for joining us from King's College and giving us that kind of behind the scenes detail on the meadow and, uh, and all the baling and getting covered by oxide daisies and everybody yeah. happy gardening happy gardening happy gardening Hey, Fordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening. And we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time. Hey.